Well, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18, and we'll begin in verse 33. And as you're finding John 18, 33, uh, the question has often been asked, what is the theme of the Bible? If you Google what is the theme of the Bible, you'll get millions and millions of possibilities. What is the focal point of Scripture? Well, I think we're on the safest ground in taking the best argument that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, ruled by God, the Son, Jesus Christ, that is the main focus of the Bible. That's the theme. And in this kingdom, mankind was designed by God to rule alongside God as his under-shepherds of the earth. This is really found in the key verses of the entire Bible, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, in which God outlines his plan that mankind is to rule the world alongside God in a glorious kingdom. But of course, we know the story of redemption, and that is the need for redemption is there because sin entered into God's creation. And the rest of the Bible now is about God's plan to restore all things to his original intention. And that's our focus this morning as we continue moving toward the cross of Christ in John 18, 19, and 20. We're seeing that the very core principles of the gospel are embedded in the story itself. And so we've been calling this series The Glorious Gospel. And from John 18, 19, and 20, we've been putting together a short gospel presentation based on each of the principles that we see. So far, what we have is Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely offered his father's plan for his, freely fulfilled rather, his father's plan for his suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. And today, our new part of the gospel presentation is, For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. And our text today is going to demonstrate that Christ has a kingdom and you will either be included or you will be excluded. Those are the only two options. And so for all of you hearing, both the Christian and the non-Christian, I want to give you today two reasons to believe in the coming kingdom of Christ. For the Christian, I want you to be reminded of your glorious future. And to the non-Christian, I want to point you to the truth. I want to point you to the fact that all humanity will be divided into those included and those excluded. And and we would pray that you would be in those included. And so two reasons to believe the coming kingdom of Christ. First reason, Christ is forming his kingdom now. Christ is forming his kingdom now. And we'll pick up where Jesus has now been presented to Annas, the high priest emeritus, to Caiaphas, the high priest, and to the ruling council of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, all three trials resulted in a push for the death penalty for Jesus. And now to be able to carry out the death penalty, the ruling authorities of Rome must agree. So Jesus has been brought to the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Pilate has told the Jewish leaders to judge Jesus themselves, but they insist on Pilate judging Jesus because they want to put him to death. And so we pick up now in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate now goes back inside the praetorium, that is the the Greek word there for governor's headquarters, for a private hearing with Jesus. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Now the Greek construction here strongly suggests a a scorn and and a mocking tone in this question. The idea here is you... A prisoner with no apparent friends, you are a king? There's a a mock, there's a mocking tone. And now in John's gospel, there really have just been a few hints, just a few passing references to Jesus as king, nothing that really gains any traction for us. But now, all of a sudden, for the very first time in John's gospel, the phrase, the king of the Jews, it grabs our attention and it opens the floodgates. This is the accusation that the Jewish leaders have brought. This is that Jesus claims to be their king. 
And once Pilate asks this question, now John's gospel explodes with the issue of Jesus as king. And in the next 23 verses alone, Jesus as the king of the Jews is mentioned eight more times. And so all of a sudden we see what the real issue is. And the basic problem that the Jewish leaders that they had with Jesus was that he claimed to be the son of God, making himself God. He claimed to be the Messiah. If he is the son of God, if he is the Messiah, then that makes him the king of Israel. Now, someone might say, well, they just didn't know who he was. Yes, they did. They did know. In his parable in Matthew 21, Jesus tells a story of a vineyard owner who has unruly tenants. And Jesus reveals the wicked heart of Israel's leaders through this parable. A vineyard owner is not receiving his crop from the tenants, and so he sends servants to collect. They beat some of the servants. They kill some of the servants. And so finally, in this parable, he sends his son. Jesus finishes the story in Matthew 21, 38 and 39. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now the vineyard owner in this parable is God the Father. The servants sent by the owner are the prophets of the Old Testament who warned Israel to repent, to repent, to repent, and they didn't heed the warning. And the tenants are the leaders of Israel. And when the vineyard owner sends his son, notice what they said. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They knew that Jesus was the son of God. They knew that he was the Messiah. They knew that he was the rightful king. And they didn't want him. That's the level of wickedness that these leaders are displaying. And by the way, when he told that parable, guess who his listeners were? Matthew 21, 23 tells us that in the temple, quote, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Do you understand that Jesus taught that parable to literally the very men who were going to kill him? And then, after teaching them this parable, he said, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Listen, the price for rejecting Christ as your Lord and as your King is high, and it's eternal The opportunity to be part of the kingdom of God will be removed from you. It'll be taken away. And so Jesus responds to Pilate's sarcastic question. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? I love the fact that in one second, Jesus immediately takes control of the conversation. He's the prisoner. He's the one bound. He's the one humbled. And yet he's in control. He's in charge. And he answers Pilate's question with another question. And what he's asking is, are you bringing the charge against me or just repeating something that you've heard? In other words, he's making it personal for Pilate. He's saying, what do you believe? What do you believe? In verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate's question is indignant, basically saying, why would I, a governor of Rome, why would I care about a claim one man may be making to be the king of a small province? This means nothing to me one way or another. But Pilate's answer shows something. It shows that he isn't satisfied with the Sanhedrin's charges against Jesus. He still can't find an actual crime. The Jews are trying to paint Jesus as a rebel, trying to overthrow Roman rule, as the true king, as if they're somehow protecting Rome's interests. In fact, they're protecting their own spiritual control over the people of Israel. The Messiah king coming would unseat all of them. And now Jesus opens the curtains to reveal his identity without saying, I am a king. Jesus says, I am a king. In verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. He says, my kingdom, meaning I'm a king, my kingdom is not of 
this world. Meaning his kingdom isn't from the world. It's not derived from anything on this earth. He makes himself clear by switching from the preposition of to a Greek adverb translated from. At the end of verse 36, my kingdom is not from the world. Meaning from here or of this place. In other words, he's saying that the source and the origin of my kingdom isn't from anywhere near here. And now what he's doing is he's taking this idea of kingdom into into a completely different category. He takes it far beyond just a rule over a given territory on earth. And it really removes any idea of Jesus trying to fight against Roman rule. In fact, we saw in the previous passage that he was arrested very easily. He presented himself in the obvious place to be arrested. And he put down the one tiny attempt by Peter to start an insurrection. And that was Peter lopping off one guy's ear. That was it. And so Jesus proves that he had no concern about merely trying to take down Roman rule in Israel. That wasn't his concern. There's no sedition. There's no rebellion. That's what an earthly kingdom would be doing. Listen carefully. Worldly kingdoms gain influence by conquering lands and people. Christ's kingdom will grow by conquering hearts. Conquering the hearts of sinners and turning them into citizens of Christ's kingdom. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 4, that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus asserted with great confidence in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. In fact, he preached a sermon on how kingdom citizens are to behave right now. It's most commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And so the kingdom of Christ is not of the world, it's not from the world, but it's most definitely growing, most definitely impacting the world in terms of the the continually increasing ranks of Christ's people in every generation. And so Pilate tries again. He tries to get Jesus to claim to be a king. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, I love this, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus refuses to accept Pilate's very limited, very narrow, very small definition of being a king. And he doesn't give a direct answer, and there's a good reason for this. If he says, yes, I am a king, it would imply that he's a king like Caesar, trying to take over, trying to be seditious, trying to be rebellious. And if he says, no then he's denying that he is a king. And so he simply doesn't give a direct answer. He says, for this purpose, I was born. And interestingly, this is the only direct reference to the birth of Christ in the entire Gospel of John. What Jesus is now doing is setting himself apart in a category that's all his own. What do I mean by that? The rest of us, myself and you, we all discover our purpose as we proceed through life. But Jesus already knew his purpose. Did you catch it? Before he was born. He's eternal. Because he came down from heaven, he already knew his purpose. And what was his purpose? It was to bear witness to the truth, the truth of the gospel, that to be part of the kingdom of Christ, which one day will be the only kingdom, you must be a signed up citizen of that kingdom. You must repent of your sin in all the ways that you've rebelled against holy God. You must bend the knee to the lordship of Christ and humbly ask for his forgiveness. You must acknowledge that your sin debt is utterly unpayable unless Christ steps in and pays the debt owed to God on your behalf through his death on the cross. You must declare your allegiance to him as one who agrees with Jesus when he said in John 15, 14, you are my friends If you do what I command you, you must be, as Paul says in Romans 6, 3, baptized into his death, fully immersed. That's our word for baptism, immersed in the death of Christ as identifying completely that he died the death you should have endured. This truth is the divine reality of a king from heaven who's offering citizenship in his kingdom through the cross. This truth is the self-revealing of God in the incarnation of his son. And this truth is that some will be part of the kingdom and most will not. Do you notice that Jesus said, everyone 
who is of the truth listens to my voice. You notice that he did not say everyone who listens to my voice will learn the truth. He didn't say that because God initiates. God is the beginning of salvation. He makes some to be of the truth such that they then can listen to his voice. Jesus said in John 3 verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said in John 10 verse 3, that Jesus portrays himself as a shepherd who has specific sheep. And he says the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You heard his voice because God made you of the truth. By the way, what else is Jesus doing here? He's issuing an invitation to Pilate. Never let it be said that Pilate didn't have an opportunity to worship Christ. This is an invitation to Pilate to hear the voice of Jesus who is the truth and who explains the truth. Jesus isn't doing what Pilate might have expected. He's not raising a a vigorous defense. He's not giving a strong denial of all accusations. Instead, he's making Pilate think that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. He's talking about things Pilate has never heard before. And so Pilate ends the conversation abruptly in verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And what did this prove? It just shows that Pilate is outside the truth. He's of the world. He's in the darkness. He's of a kingdom that is in this world and he has no comprehension of the kingdom of God. Listen, the true church of Jesus Christ represents the continual building of the kingdom of God. Kingdom citizens being called by God unto salvation day after day after day after day. For the last 2,000 years, the kingdom has been growing and growing. It's just that most of the kingdom citizens are now in heaven waiting for a, a, a coming day. Christ is forming his kingdom now. And that's our first reason to believe the coming kingdom of Christ. But we should be more precise. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He did not say, my kingdom is not coming to this world. He didn't say that. Christ is forming his kingdom now. Second reason to believe, Christ is bringing his kingdom soon. Christ is bringing his kingdom soon. And I want to get a glimpse of the moments right before Christ brings his kingdom to earth. And so take your Bibles and turn with me to the end of the Bible to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to see a very different picture Then the first coming of Christ, there's no manger, there's no shepherds, there's no star of Bethlehem, no silent night. How is Christ going to bring his kingdom? I want to outline a few ways that Christ will bring his kingdom. I'll just give you some one word descriptions. Christ is bringing his kingdom, first of all, with fanfare, with fanfare. Verse 11 Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Heaven is opened. Now, this isn't just the idea of the Apostle John, the author of Revelation, seeing into heaven. It's the idea of heaven opening its gates for Messiah King to return to the earth. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 30, then will appear in heaven, meaning where it's visible, will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And catch this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And here in Revelation 19, Jesus is pictured on a white horse in the Bible. The horse is most frequently a symbol of war, a symbol of conquest, a symbol of victory. And he's called faithful and true. These two titles are often used together. In Revelation 3, verse 14, Jesus is called the faithful and true witness. Jesus is faithful and true in that if he says it's going to happen, then he will make it happen because he's all-powerful. He is as faithful to his promise to judge and slay the wicked as he is to his promise to save and redeem those who would repent and receive him as their Lord and Savior. And in fact, his trueness 
His trueness speaks to the fact that he is the one true living God. The church at Thessalonica was commended by Paul for turning to serve, quote, the living and true God. The whole earth is going to see his coming. It'll be with fanfare. And apparently, apparently the coming of Christ to earth will be slow enough that unbelievers will have time to be terrified. Revelation 6, 15 and 16 records people of all stations in life hiding in caves and begging for death before the wrath of the Lamb of God arrives. They see him coming and they have long enough to be scared. Christ is bringing his kingdom with fanfare. It's another description. Christ is bringing his kingdom with righteousness. With righteousness. At the end of verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is a very simple uh, theological issue here. Only God is righteous. And if Jesus is in righteousness making war and judging, therefore Jesus is God. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, Jesus is the righteous one. He is the one final standard of all things and he requires his moral agents, mankind, to adhere to his standard. And now Jesus comes as a judge to make war, to be judge and executioner. Jesus' enemies will be hardened sinners who have despised and rejected the gospel message that has been preached to them during the great tribulation, which has happened now just before the second coming. Jesus will not make peace with sin and he must, according to his righteous character, snuff it out. The sinners haven't responded to the offered grace of God. They haven't responded to the clear evidence during the great tribulation of the coming judgment of God. Verse 12 begins, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This is his total power to see all, to know all, to judge all, to know every detail This is exactly the same description of Christ given in Revelation 1, verse 14. And then when Jesus was about to judge the wicked people in the church of Thyatira, he described the coming pronouncement as the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire in Revelation 2. Nothing will escape his omniscient notice. And we're told... In Hebrews 4.13, and this is chilling if you don't know Christ. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Another descriptor. Christ is bringing his kingdom with supremacy. He's bringing his kingdom with supremacy. Verse 12 continues, And on his head are many diadems. Diadems, these are kingly crowns. In Revelation 12, Satan, pictured as a dragon, is shown as having seven crowns. And then the Antichrist is shown as having ten crowns, representing the ten-nation alliance that he'll rule, or perhaps ten provinces in the unified empire. But Christ has many crowns, many diadems. In other words, all of them. In the ancient Near East, conquering kings took the crown of their defeated enemy. David took the crown of the Ammonite king in 2 Samuel 12. But here's his supremacy. None of this has happened yet. Christ hasn't conquered yet. He's still in heaven. He's still seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. And yet John's vision of Christ is that he's wearing all the crowns of the earth in advance to his coming. Verse 12 continues, speaking of supremacy. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, we've said this before, but in the ancient Near East, and certainly all through Scripture, a name is meant to capture the essence of a person, who they are. When an ancient king was making an announcement, he would use his name at the beginning of this announcement in third person, almost like he's talking about someone else. For example, 2 Chronicles 36, 22, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. And then he made an announcement concerning the temple in Jerusalem. He emphasizes his name. It's front-loaded. And in fact, the repeated nature of someone's name was indicative of his importance. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, and the shortened form of Yah, occurs 
more than every other Hebrew word in the Old Testament, 6,800 times, emphasizing his supremacy for Jesus Christ to describe the glory and the majesty of the Son of God. There are at least 200 different names and titles for Jesus in the Bible, and those are just the ones that God tells us about. But sometimes the name is withheld. In Genesis 32, 29, when Jacob wrestled with God, a pre-incarnate, a pre-birth Jesus Christ, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. He wouldn't tell him his name. Why? Because he's supreme. In Judges 13, when the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate, pre-birth Jesus Christ, appeared to Manoah, who was Samson's father, Manoah said, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? He wouldn't tell him his name. And what's the reason? Well, in the ancient Near East, it was well known that the one with the greatest authority and the greatest power had the privilege of withholding his name. And the Lord Jesus has an as yet unrevealed name, one which we will learn and receive in the coming kingdom, one he has withheld. In Revelation 3, verse 12, Jesus said he will write on all his people, quote, my own new name. And whatever this name is, it's a name that's a gift from God the Father to honor Christ. It's a name that speaks of and commands respect for the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-supreme nature of Christ. It's very likely the name which is spoken of in Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Christ is bringing his kingdom with supremacy. There's another descriptor. Christ is bringing his kingdom with certainty. With certainty. In verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, some have said this is the blood of Christ from the cross. This is not the context here at all. We gain some wisdom from Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 2. A question is asked. Here's the question, and it's asked of Christ. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And here's the answer of the coming king. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. In other words, this picture in Revelation 19 is a picture of Jesus Christ on his white horse and his robe is stained in the blood of those yet to die. That's certainty. Revelation 14, 20 says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Translation, blood will be splattered for 200 miles at the coming of Christ. Now, some would say, we shouldn't take that so literally. This isn't really speaking of Jesus actually coming and killing people. After all, he's the Prince of Peace, right And he establishes peace by killing his enemies. When the only people left alive on earth are worshipers of Christ, what do you call that? Peace. That's how peace comes. Christ is bringing his kingdom with certainty. Another descriptor, Christ is bringing his kingdom with power. He's bringing his kingdom with power. Verse 13, And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The Word of God. Now, in John's Gospel, we're familiar with this. This is one of John's favorite names for the Lord. And by the way, he's the only New Testament writer to be given this name for the Lord. Every time Jesus is referred to as the Word of God, it's always John writing. John starts two of his books, both his Gospel and his first letter, calling Jesus the Word of God. And certainly speaks to Christ as the very representative of the mind and the heart of God. It speaks to the close connection between the scriptures and the mind of God, the self-revelation of God. 
And certainly it brings to mind that with a word, the word of God brought creation into existence. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 tell us that Christ is the creator. But this context in Revelation 19 demands a different meaning. Verse 15 tells us that meaning, meaning. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The word of God is reminding us that from his mouth come words of destruction. Scripture confirms this. Isaiah 11 verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So what's going to happen when Christ comes and when he speaks? What's going to happen when the Lord speaks? Well, there's several forms of destruction that we know of. And we get some help from Ezekiel chapter 38. You don't have to turn there, but the, the first thing that happens when the Lord Jesus speaks is an earthquake. An earthquake, Ezekiel 38, 19 says, For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Revelation 16, verse 18 confirms this as the greatest earthquake of all time. Another thing that happens when Christ opens his mouth, we might call this one friendly fire. Friendly fire, Ezekiel 38, 21 I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. This is friendly fire. This is, this is one man killing his brother's soldier. God has used this tactic in the Old Testament before, and if it ain't broke, then don't fix it. He uses it again. There's a third thing that happens when Christ opens his mouth. Natural disaster. Natural disaster, Ezekiel 38, 22 says that pestilence and torrential rains and hailstones and fire and sulfur will come down. Verse 23 says, quote, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, that is Jesus Christ claiming to be Yahweh. And probably the, the final blow, we'll just call this one a word of death. A word of death, Zechariah fourteen twelve, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples and wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Literally, they will die and rot so fast that their bones will still be standing up and then clatter to the ground. And all of a sudden, Everything will be quiet. And there will be a sea of bones everywhere. And in this way, the rest of verse 15, he will rule them with a rod of iron, meaning he will strike them with the rod of his words. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is a picture of the crushing and the liquefying of his enemies to the point that the whole of Israel, the site of this great battle, will look like wine flowing everywhere with blood. Christ is bringing his kingdom with power. But Christ is also bringing his kingdom with armies. With armies. Back in verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, the question is, who are these armies of heaven here in verse 14? We already know that the angels of God will come with Christ at the second coming. Mark 8, 38 says that Christ will return with the holy angels. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So we, we know that. That's old information. The angels are obviously coming with him. But here in Revelation nineteen fourteen. John intentionally, remember he's, he's a great man of detail, he intentionally includes the detail of the clothing. They're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. And in this same context, right before this very event, we see the same people. Look back with me at Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride that is you, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright 
and pure. Who is that? Those are the saints. That's you. The relationship to verse 14 is unmistakable and it's not coincidence. Which means, by the way, that the saints, the church, are already in heaven with Christ at this point, being made ready for this re-entry to earth. They're already wearing clothing, meaning that they're resurrected. And this fits precisely with 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17's description of the rapture and the resurrection of the saints. And in fact, if you don't believe me, speaking of this final battle that is yet to come, Revelation 17, 14 says, they, speaking of the wicked kings of the earth, uh, gathered together against Christ, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Listen to this. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Who is that? That's you. You are called, you are chosen, and you are faithful. And so Jesus treads the winepress alone, Isaiah 63.3, The battle is his to win. The battle is his to fight. And the saints come along, we might say, as an unarmed escort. In fact, Colossians 3 verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is bringing his kingdom with armies. It's another descriptor. Christ is bringing his kingdom with justice. With justice, verse 16 On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is one of our favorite designations of Christ. And by the way, this isn't just a New Testament name. This harkens back to a similar Old Testament description of God. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. In Daniel 2, 47. God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And and this is a linguistic device. the, the basic sense is he's the absolute God. He's the absolute Lord. And therefore, Christ is the absolute king and the absolute Lord. Now, why is he king of kings? And why is he Lord of lords? Because he will judge all kings and he will judge all lords. Every ruler of every age will come and appear before God the Son to give an account of himself. And finally, justice will be done in all the world. Listen, every time we have an election day and you feel frustrated at the results, you just smile because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming and all will appear before him. Christ is bringing his kingdom with justice. It's another descriptor. Christ is bringing his kingdom with victory. With victory. Skip over to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who is this beast? Well, this is the same as the beast in Revelation 11, verse 7. It's the same as the first beast of chapter 13, the number of whose name is 666. In chapter 17, it's the same as the one who faked his own resurrection. So this is Antichrist. His armies are together. We've already had a preview of this in Revelation 16, beginning in verse 13, which we see demonic spirits gathering kings together, quote, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This means the Valley of Megiddo. This is not symbolic. This is not a metaphor. This is an upcoming, actual, historic event that brings the reign of Antichrist to an end and leads the world into the long-awaited time of Christ's kingdom on earth. In fact, Ezekiel 38 and 39 gives us great detail concerning the gathering of these forces, and it reads like an extended commentary on the Battle of Armageddon. But why are these armies being gathered together in the first place? Well, why, are they, why have they come together? Well, there's many theories. We're not told why specifically, but the best possibility comes from our understanding of Revelation chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. During the last half of the Great Tribulation, God sends two witnesses to Jerusalem to prophesy for three and a half years. They can't be killed, and anyone who opposes them is killed by the witnesses with fire. 
the witnesses are bringing Egypt-like plagues on those who won't believe in the Lord Jesus. And then they are allowed to be killed. Their, their bodies are left lying in the street for three and a half days. And Jerusalem rejoices and celebrates that these, these guys have been such a pain for three and a half years. So all the unbelievers, they're finally dead. Oh, but then the party ends. Because they're raised to life. And all the people in Jerusalem will hear a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And the resurrected men will ascend into heaven. And right then a great earthquake will occur. 7,000 of the top officials in the city, including all of Antichrist's representatives, will die. And the key is in Revelation 11, verse 13. And the rest were terrified, listen to this, and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is very important because in Revelation, the phrase gave glory to God always signifies salvation. What does this mean? Well, it means that all of a sudden, Jerusalem, the center of Antichrist's spiritual hold in the world, has flipped. Now there's no one left alive who serves Antichrist. And all who are there have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they'll turn on Antichrist, they'll rebel. And thus he'll gather his alliance of nations to take back what he sees as his. That's probably our best option of what's going to happen, why they're gathered. But what's going to happen? Total devastating victory by Jesus Christ against all. Back in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then in verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ezekiel 39 describes the total destruction of these enemy forces. People are cleaning up the mess of gear and weaponry. People are burying the bones of the dead. Why just the bones? Well, God is taking care of the flesh. Ezekiel 39, beginning in verse 17, describes God bringing the beasts of the field and the birds of the air to eat, quote, the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And this is what, in our text here, is called the Great Supper of God. Jesus already predicted this. He said in Matthew 24, 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What a horrible picture of carnage, but it just heightens how victorious Christ will be. And then, of course, verse 20 tells us what happens to Antichrist. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Antichrist and his false prophet will have the privilege of being the very first cast into hell. Well, what happens then? Christ will be united with Gentile nations made up of glorified saints and surviving believing Gentiles of the Great Tribulation. Christ will be united at long last with his beloved Israel, his beloved city Jerusalem, of which he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together. Now she is gathered together. Ezekiel 39, beginning in verse 21 says, I will set my glory among the nations. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God. From that day forward, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Listen, Christ is bringing his kingdom with fanfare, righteousness, supremacy, certainty, power, armies, justice, victory. And what comes next? Well, we've already alluded to it. Finally, Christ is bringing his kingdom with peace. With peace, Micah chapter 4 verse 3 says that all war will be ended. And what can we expect in this peace? Well, I'll give you a few descriptors of the peace. It will be a theocratic peace. 
a theocratic peace, a, a, a peace with God reigning on earth. Isaiah 24, verse 23 says that, that God will rule from Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, and to him that is Christ was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Another descriptor, it'll be an unrivaled peace. There will be no rivalries. Daniel 2, 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. It will be, another descriptor, it will be a a beautiful peace. A beautiful peace. Many aspects of the curse of sin will be reversed at this point. Animals will no longer fear mankind and vice versa. Isaiah 11.6 tells us the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Isaiah 35 verse 1 says the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It's a rose. Isaiah 55.13 says instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. And in fact, Zechariah 14.8 says the temple of God in Jerusalem will water the entire region. And of course, by implication, the whole earth will be restored to great productivity and beauty. And speaking of productivity, it will also be a prosperous peace. A a prosperous peace. Amos 9, beginning in verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. Then they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. This is almost a comical picture of the earth giving such yield, such produce, that, that the guy who's planting the seeds is telling the guy who's harvesting the grapes, get out of the way, they're growing too fast, get out of the way, move, we've got to get done here. And being overtaken by prosperity. Isaiah 65, 22, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And finally, this is the best part. It will be a worshipful peace. A worshipful peace. This is the highlight. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7 says, The foreigners, that's you, that's me, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Did you catch this? You will visit Jerusalem. You will worship Christ. You will see Christ. And someday, someday the prayer that the Lord taught His disciples will have to modify it a little bit. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom came. Your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And all this, by the way, that's just the first thousand years. That's just the foretaste. That's just the lobby. That's just the foyer. Because then, Revelation 21 tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But before Christ wears the many diadems, the many crowns of the nations, he first must wear the crown of thorns. And so we have to go back to Pilate's headquarters. We have to go back to the Lord Jesus Christ about to face humiliation and death for your sake, to pay the penalty for your sin such that you might be part of the glorious kingdom there are only two types of human beings 
those who will be included in the kingdom because you repented. You bowed the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and in humility and self-degradation, you crawled on your face and asked for mercy and you will be included. But if you use the opportunity to hear the gospel again and again, to stand in pride before Christ, you will be excluded. My prayer is for all of you who are excluded to bend the knee to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, because listen to me, He will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords regardless of whether you acknowledge it or not. Because the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. You will either bend the knee out of love and kindness and joy, or you will bend the knee right before the Lord Jesus Christ takes you by the scruff of the neck and casts you for all eternity into hell. Be included. Be in the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. Many, many Christians, countless Christians for 2,000 years have been praying, your kingdom come, and so it is coming. Be in it. Be in it. Let's pray. Our Father, how clear the Bible is with repetition after repetition after repetition. We're told that the kingdom is coming and Christ will be at the head. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And my prayer is for every person who is listening to this message right now that if they are not included in the kingdom that with fear and trepidation and urgency they would fall on their faces and acknowledge Christ as King and as Savior and as Lord and humble themselves to be His servants. And for all who are in Christ already, I pray you would encourage our hearts that all the wickedness, all the difficulties, all the disease, all the pestilence, all the crises that are happening in our world, they'll all pass away. And someday, as we read earlier from Zephaniah 3, our King of kings, our Lord of lords will stand among us and He will exult over us and He will sing over us. And He'll wipe every tear from every eye. We are encouraged by that and we are strengthened to continue on. And we would pray that your kingdom would come soon. And we pray these things for the glory of our King of kings, our Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.